I'm Patricia Pierce. Welcome to the We Awakening podcast. Beneath the global crises we are facing, something truly extraordinary is happening on Earth. Planetary consciousness is shifting as humankind sheds its belief in separateness and awakens to the truth of interexistence. In this podcast, we explore this awakening into unitive consciousness that will give rise to a new world, and we celebrate the luminous web that connects us all. Hello, beautiful souls. My guest today is Peter Fikowski. Peter is an MIT-trained physicist. He's worked for NASA, has 27 patents, taught at MIT for a while, and has worked for decades in the tech field and also as an entrepreneur, and is also a philanthropist. And recently, in the last decade or so, he has turned his attention to the climate issue, recognizing that the goals that we have set in terms of the Paris Accords and so forth are far, far from adequate. And he has written a book recently, it's come out this year, called Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. And I met Peter many years ago when a small gathering of religious leaders came together with him to talk about climate restoration from a spiritual perspective. And that was my introduction to Peter. And every time that I learn about his work, I get so excited. And I've been very, very much looking forward to having him with us today to talk about the work that he is doing, climate restoration. So Peter, thank you again. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. And every time that I um, interact with your work, I get so excited and so inspired. And it was, I learned that you had a book out uh, when I got an email from the Pachamama Alliance that you were doing a webinar with them. So you uh, have published this book, Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. And I have really, really been looking forward to speaking with, with you about it. As an introduction, just to help our listeners kind of get a sense of who you are, um, your background is not in this field. It was You were an MIT-trained physicist. So just tell us a little bit of how, how you ended up doing what you're doing now in terms yeah. of climate work. Yeah, Patricia, thank you. And uh, you know, it's good to have known you for quite a few years. And thank you for having me on your podcast. This is going to be a lot of fun. And you know, I'm with you that whenever I think about it, about the book and about climate restoration, I get excited too. And I don't think about it all the time. So I, I get pretty bleary-eyed that I remember what I'm doing. I get excited. So we're on the same page. So um, the way I got into this was sideways. That is, uh, I went to MIT because I wanted to make a difference in the world. I was raised in Washington, D.C. My parents were both government economists and uh, struggled to make a difference, if you can imagine. like You can describe the economics, but actually to actually make the, the, the country work well is beyond human ability. And so I thought, well, the physical world is easier, easier to work with. So I went to MIT and studied physics. <clears throat> and by the time I got out, I was very depressed because I watched my professors, who were the smartest men and women in the world, probably, 
um, struggling to make a difference, struggling to make the world a better place. Um, you know, it's nice to invent things. I, I was one of the first inventors of a blinking bicycle light, you know, how bicycle lights blink. And so I happened to be in the right place at the right time and developed that. Um, that's nice, but, but it really doesn't change the quality of life. Well, let me and, just pause you there for a moment because my husband commutes to his work and I'm very happy in the wintertime when he's riding home in the dark that his light is blinking. So thank you for that. So you're welcome. You made a difference. You brought me more peace of mind. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Thanks. Um, um, and so uh, after I uh, finished it, finished at MIT, I came here to Silicon Valley and uh, had a few jobs uh, at NASA at an artificial intelligence lab. Um, and then from the artificial intelligence lab, I started my own software business doing uh, defect analysis, which is really boring. Not well, it's really arcane um, and very important. Uh, and um, along the way, I uh, got engaged in in poverty reduction. So I was doing advocacy to re uh, reduce uh, reduce poverty and uh, eliminate persistent hunger. And that worked. That was interesting because I was busy raising my family and not paying much attention. I was organizing groups here in California and missing all the meetings in Washington. And um, But the head of UNICEF asked us to come and raise the money to finish his project of immunizing the vaccinating the world's children. Because in the 70s and 60s, it was North America and Europe that immunized our children. So it was about 8% of the world. And yet, uh, and the head of UNICEF said, it's time to go all the way and immunize all the children by 1990. And by 1985, that wasn't happening. He asked us to raise the money. And uh, even though it was the Reagan administration, no one expected the government to put money in for other countries' children. Um, it happened. You know, we we got the the money out of Congress, and um, it changed the world. The immunization rate went from eight percent to eighty five percent, and stayed there ever since. And then we did a similar thing with microfinance that. Uh, we worked with Mohammed Yunus, who got the Nobel Prize for developing micro microcredit and microfinance, and said, "Well, what would be a meaningful goal, especially having completed recently the um, the child vaccination goal?" And uh, they decided, I'll say we, but I wasn't there, um, decided to uh, reach half the world's population living on less than a dollar a day with microfinance, and to do that in just ten years. It ended up, it was really hard, and it ended up taking 11 years. Learned an amazing amount about um, how you reach poor people. That it wasn't a finance problem. It was a how do you reach someone li living on a dollar a day? They hide in the shadows. We had no idea, but we set the meaningful what by when goal. And um, things continued on by 2010. Um, I could see the huge progress we were making on poverty and hunger was plateauing, uh, and it was because of because of the climate. And I knew that would be the case uh, when I was uh, a freshman or sophomore in 1975. Um, we knew that global warming was happening. There was a little bit of evidence, 
and the physics was very simple. Um, you know, having studied astrophysics, I knew that if you heat up a planet, it gets warmer. This is, <laughs> it's, it's pretty not, obvious, isn't it? It's pretty obvious, that's right. And that we would have to remove a trillion tons of CO2 around the end of the century. So this was 75. So if for an 18-year-old, 25 you know, years in the future is forever. Yeah. I can remember yeah. that experience. 25 years. Oh, that's plenty <laughs> of time. And I figured that the very smart chemical engineers who had figured out how to get CO2 out of uh, out of spaceships, right? We were just finishing the Apollo program and out of submarines that you know, they would figure out how to do it at a large scale and make keep the planet habitable by humans. It was a no-brainer. And I decided to stick stick with uh, with uh, astrophysics, which eventually shifted uh, to, to uh, semiconductor manufacturing. Nothing to do with that, but I was committed to the well-being of our future generations and didn't think I was smart enough to do anything but get in the way. Um, that's sort of my experience growing up in Washington, D.C. It seemed like everybody was getting in the way of progress. Anyway, um, 2010, I asked, um, uh, I had helped found the Citizens Climate Lobby, and um, uh, I was on the periphery advising, and I asked them, well, how are, you, how are we doing on, uh, on, on meaningful climate goals? And they said, well, we're putting a working on getting a price on carbon. I said, well, that's good, but will that keep the planet uh, livable by, by my children? And uh, the head of, of the Citizens Climate Lobby said, well, talk with Jim Hansen, who's is the sort of the grandfather of climate science um, and who was on the board. So I had lunch with him and Jim Hansen said, well, I don't know what the goal is. I don't know what we can do because um, after all these years in NASA and doing the science, I don't think Congress will ever enact any meaningful laws or regulations to deal with the climate. So I don't know. And I was really depressed. I thought, this is hopeless. Um, if you don't have a plan, you certainly aren't going to succeed. Yeah. So, um, uh, a few years evolved or you know, came by. Um, uh, it started with, uh, after that, my daughter came back from uh, spring break or came back for spring break. And I realized that I couldn't, um, I couldn't not deal with the climate, even if it was the framing of it was hopeless. Mm. So I, I took it on and, and ended up coming up with uh, climate restoration as a goal. And what's really relevant here is that 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 transformation came at one of the climate conferences where a bishop had a dinner with about 20 of us. And he was telling us about how climate is a moral issue. And I walked into that dinner as a physicist, sort of rolling my eyes, but I was noticing that I was rolling my eyes. Mm -hmm. I, knew, I knew that I had closed my mind. Of course, once you notice you've closed your mind, it sort of opens. Yeah. And um, after a couple of glasses of wine, I, it, the light went on that I, I and my whole scientific brethren had treated climate as a science issue, um, where the science was, had been figured out in 1880. So it was just a, actually a political issue disguised as a science issue, and humanity was left entirely out of the of the discussion. 
And once I realized that I was doing this for my daughter, for all of our daughters and sons, and what do they want? Well, they want the same climate that we had um, when we developed agriculture and civilization. It's very simple. And there were those of your listening listeners who have done physics realize that once you come up with a clear definition of a problem, you, you, there's always a solution. Now, you may not want to spend the time or the effort on the solution, but there is a solution. And of course, with restoring the climate, um, cost isn't an issue, right? So you don't throw a, a solution out the window because it seems too expensive. And indeed, we, we found the solutions. And that's how I got into it, is um, fundamentally on my my wall opposite the monitor here, my, I have a mission statement that my mission in life is to leave a world that we're proud of to our children. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. So yeah. you were rolling your eyes, but deep down, you were you were inspired to take this on out of this love for your children and their children and future generations. Yeah. So and and I'm just taken with the fact that you and I first met because there was a group that convened to talk about the you understood at that point that the science itself is not enough to move people, that there's another dimension here, which is the spiritual or the faith dimension, and that that's that, that also plays into it. Yeah. Yeah, well, because I could see that the transformation for me happened at this dinner with the bishop. And um, it was never going to happen at MIT where I was a student because it's just the wrong the wrong paradigm. Mm. You know, there's nothing wrong with science, but you don't use science to save humanity mm. because humanity is a subjective issue. It, you know, we care about our children because we care about our children and there's no provable reason uh, that, you, know, you, you can use, you can frame it as religion because God told us to, or just be a little bit more scientific and say, well, we're human. And so of course we worry about our children. That's the end of the, I can't go any deeper. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it? It, what is your elevator speech? What is climate restoration? What do you say like in a nutshell when you yeah. want to say what this is? Yeah. So uh, Climate restoration starts with that we all want to leave a climate that humans have actually survived to our children. Everyone wants that. And we also want to leave a sustainable population because we want society and humanity to be sustained. And it turns out that we have all the technology and finance to do that. And now we just need the will. We need to put it on, on the agenda. Mm -hmm. And that's climate restoration. And you have said that the Paris Accords, you've referred to it as the Paris Suicide Pact. Yes, yes. Can you, can you say more <laughs> about that? Because yeah. I think, let me just pause for a moment, because I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about reducing emissions, reducing CO2 levels. And by 2050, you know, we've reached net zero. But as you note, that that's not going to leave us in a very good place at all. But that's the way we've been thinking about it. Like it, what we have to do now is reduce emissions, but you are taking it so much further than that. So why is this the Paris suicide pact? Well, the, the Paris Accords were designed um, originally to get us to stay below two degrees warming. 
and then they shifted it to try to get to stay below one and a half degrees. The two degree goal was a designed by Nobel Prize winning economist um, as an answer to the question, how do we maximize economic growth while we uh, transition to clean energy? And, um, and he said, well, let's set, you know, uh, economic growth will decrease when we get above two degrees, as we well know, that in fact, society will probably collapse. And so he said, well, let's not go above two degrees because you know it'll be bad for the economy. And that was as deep as they needed to go in 1977. The UN quoted that, and people thought it was a scientific, yeah, you know, that it was it was ecology and and uh, those kinds of things. And it wasn't. It was just a very simple economics uh, estimation. But it became a myth that it was science. So the, the Paris goal was to do that. And if you if you think. Have you ever heard an expert say that if we achieve the Paris goal, if we get to net zero by 2050, that we have even a decent chance of survival? And you know, people get quiet and they think, no, I don't think I've ever heard that. No, you've mm -hmm. definitely not heard that because <laughs> it's no one says it. And it's probably, there's no evidence that it's true. And so we're just changing the paradigm that the goal isn't, isn't this is radical. The goal isn't economic growth. The, the goal is humanity's flourishing. Mm -hmm. And I would add along with humanity, because the entire ecosystem has been affected by human activity in this regard, that we are doing it on behalf of all life on earth. So, you know, I, I sort of zoom out Um well, well now, you can take that you can take that yeah. and realize that humanity includes all life on earth. There is no Absolutely. humanity without Absolutely. life on earth. Absolutely. And so I, I always love this little all... twist on the conversation. I, yeah, I, when yeah, I yeah. say humanity flourishing, the, the other person will always say, Well, but it's all of nature. Well, yeah. what what were you thinking? It's and they're not disconnected. It's all one fabric. It's all so one. If humanity That's right. we is talk... flourishing in a sustainable way. And we'll get to the population issue yes. later. Yes. When we back, come back into that kind of balance with the natural order, then the planet is flourishing. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and you know, the, I, I use the word flourishing because it has flower in it. Mm. And what's interesting about flourishing is something is flourishing when it, it's living or being the way it's designed. And so people do, you know, get born, get older and eventually die. And you know, and a healthy death is part of flourishing. Exactly. <laughs> My flowers are blooming and dying even as we speak. It's the it's the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the point then is with the with the Paris Accords, it would leave us at a level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that would result in a planet that is so warm, so hot that human civilization and many, many species on the planet simply cannot survive. This is not the climate that we've evolved to survive in. Well, there's a certain uncertainty there, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, uh, some people might survive. You mm -hmm. know, I, I've hastened to guess that Bill Gates's children and grandchildren will survive. Mm -hmm. uh, who knows? Because we, we ain't going there. But yeah. one could imagine that. Yeah, I, I, I have an analogy of... Um, you know, in Paris, we went from two, a two-degree goal to one and a half. 
and it's you know we're we're playing Russian roulette with our children, and the Paris goal essentially said, okay, we're going from five bullets in the barrel down to four, maybe three, yeah. which is which is nice, but obviously we want zero. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> and, and so whether no matter what the probability is, what we want is zero, and that's that's climate restoration. Yeah. So let's get into the meat of this then, because what you are talking about and the work that you're doing, and let me just say that you've been meeting with people at the UN, you've been, you've been, since we met even, I think there's been a lot that's been happening. Yes, yes. And this is all about uh, looking and asking the question, really posing the question to planet Earth, Earth, how do you sequester carbon? Right, because Earth has been doing this for millennia, like millennia, like millions of years. Earth has been doing this. So one of the things that I just I want, want to say this up front. One of the things that I deeply appreciate about your work is that it it listens to the natural order of things. Like, and it it's like for me, it's like humans. Let's let's be a little bit humble here and let's ask planet Earth, how do we do this? We've put all of these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and wow, things are not looking good. Now, how do we step up and help bring it back down again? So that's one of the things I love about your work. You look yes. at nature and say, how, how is carbon effectively sequestered? And you come up with, you have three criteria. Yeah. Well, Whatever. Before, be, yeah, go ahead. before we go there, yeah. um, just yeah, so your listeners know it wasn't that easy. So I'm a physicist, and so I went at it purely technologically. Mm-hmm. But then I have an economics background, so I said, whatever solution we have has to be financially viable. Mm-hmm. You, if no one can pay for it, it's not a solution. Well, when I put the, the physics in, that it has to be scalable, it has to be permanent, that's science, and it has to be financially viable. The, the out of the 10 solutions we had, which were almost all technological, the only three that came out were the ones that nature had developed. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> it, it wasn't intentional. It was nature's very efficient at this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She, yeah. she spent a, a, a few years, a few billion years working Has on figured this it for out. Us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, those three criteria you just mentioned that whatever it is that we do to, 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 draw these draw co2 and methane out of the atmosphere it has to be scalable it has to be doable on a large enough scale that it will make a difference yeah it has to be permanent by which you say it has to sequester carbon for at least 100 years mm-hmm. and it has to be uh financeable and i want to back up to that middle one because the the permanent part because i think when a lot of us think of or have thought about uh, sequestering carbon, we think about planting trees. That's kind of been our go-to solution. And yet, as we have seen these forest fires just raging all over the planet, we see that carbon may be sequestered in a forest, but it can go up in a flash. And all of that then is be- released back into the atmosphere. Yeah. So you are looking not at not at reforestation, although that is important in its own right, but in terms of sequestering carbon, you've identified other means to do it. So do you want to jump into what those are? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the first method is the method that nature uses before ice ages to cool the planet down. 
And we've had 10 ice ages in the last million years uh, where nature had to remove the same trillion tons that we'll be removing by 2050. I notice my confidence here. And people say, why are you so confident? And I answer, well, can you think of a more important thing? We're not giving up until it's done. That's why I'm confident. You know, <laughs> I want to pause you there because I realize we didn't say something really important, which is the goal here is to remove, to bring back the CO2 levels by 2050. So it's just like less than 30 years from now to, yeah. and I want people to really get this and let this land in them, pre-industrial levels. Like just take that in for a moment. Bring CO2 levels down to pre-industrial levels by 2050. So that's yeah. the goal. Yeah. So and, and and you know, just for an illustration, when a when a ship is on in stormy seas, the captain will point the ship to the nearest safe harbor. It's a place where the ship has been safely before. And so and and the, the captain will ignore someone saying, Oh, I know this great island. That's fine. We're going to the safe harbor. The safe harbor is the pre-industrial CO2 level and the pre-industrial population level, because we know those levels sustain human life for thousands, tens of thousands of years. That's enough said. And so, yes, this is restoring the, the safe harbor level of CO2. And so uh, nature has done that and it makes sense to do the same method that nature did. Now we have to do it a thousand times faster and it sounds scary, but you know, nature didn't have any engineers or any financial systems and communication systems to do things intentionally. Um, the nature uh, uh, removed the CO2 for the ice ages by uh, what, what we call ocean iron fertilization. So uh, dust in the ocean would provide the missing nutrient that would turn blue ocean, which is beautiful, I always think of Hawaii to green because blue isn't green. Green is where you have the plants growing in the ocean, which eventually sink into the deep ocean and sequester the carbon. Uh, on land, as you said, trees die and rot or burn, but in the ocean, the 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 flora, the mostly it's algae, uh, sinks. And um, yeah, so, so that's the first one is iron fertilization, which uh, harnesses the, the sunlight on the ocean. And what's wonderful about it is it's done just locally in small areas, 100 miles in diameter, uh, similar to what happens with dust from a volcano or a dust storm. And it's, it's occasional. It's every year or two. So it's not continuous. So it doesn't change the whole ocean. People rightfully worry, like, you can't fertilize the whole ocean. God knows what that will do. Exactly. And we don't want to ask God what it will do. <laughs> we want to do it, what nature has done, which is do it periodically uh, fertilize the ocean. You get a lot of uh, algae and then you get a lot of fish. What they discovered 10 years ago was not only did they get five times the number of fish, uh, the pink salmon in Alaska, where they tested this, but the uh, whales started coming back because just in that one season of a lot of food, um, a lot of female whales got pregnant. And then a year and a half, two and a half years later, delivered uh, baby whales. Mm. So um, it's very exciting. So that, that's the, the first one. The second one is synthetic limestone, which um, 
limestone is what nature does over hundreds of millions of years. And so uh, much more CO, much more carbon in limestone. Limestone holds 99% of all the carbon on our planet, mostly on the floor of the ocean, um, because it's the, the consists of the shells and skeletons of fish and plants um, that fall and then just stay there. And limestone is calcium carbonate, and it's by weight almost half CO2. And so those skeletons you know, accumulated there uh, are half, the, all, almost all of the CO2 the carbon on the planet. And imagine the, the White Cliffs of Dover, if you've ever seen it or seen pictures of it, these beautiful white cliffs. So that's just hundreds of millions of years of, of uh, uh, sea animals and sea, sea plants. So uh, there's a company here in Silicon Valley that was working on this problem. And originally they were, were working on low carbon cement and realized that cement's only 10% of concrete, that most of concrete is limestone. And then realized, oh my gosh, this is how, how nature removes huge amounts of CO2 is creating limestone. You say, oh God, the high, you know, it sounds like you have to have a big furnace at 10,000 degrees. But no, no, no. Um, imagine a, an oyster on your dinner plate or in the ocean, depending on where you usually see oysters. A little uh, tiny oyster makes the, their, the shell, which is limestone. And so it's a chemical, a, a chemistry uh, process. And it's not terribly complex. It doesn't take, it, it, it takes very little energy. Um, you know, people usually think that you have to reverse the burning of coal, right? When you burn coal, you produce CO2 and intuition says, well, if you want to reverse that process and bring the CO2 back down, it needs that much energy that you came out in that coal fire. Well, it, out of the atmosphere again. is what Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I'm speaking for myself there. I spent years puzzling over how do we do that technologically? Because that's my heritage. And, um, and it took me an hour for the guy who invented this, uh, Brent Constance, to, for me to realize, oh my God, nature has a much more efficient way of doing this than trying to reverse coal burning, it, which is the limestone. And what's wonderful with the, lime, the synthetic limestone is, um, by, yeah, actually, I have a bottle of it here. You can see it from Blue Planet. And... Um, uh, the, 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 there's a, a trillion dollar a year market for rock, which is mostly used in concrete for our roads and our buildings. We use a phenomenal amount of it um, because rock is heavy. <laughs> and, um, um, and so it's, a, it's a, a viable business. So they make the limestone from calcium from various sources and from CO2 from the air. Right now, since they can uh, uh, get paid to take CO2 from power plants and from steel mills, they use that. But those, you know, the energy transition is happening and those are going to go away, in which case they can get the CO2 directly from the air. Uh, it costs a, a dollar a ton more or something like that. So it's not a big deal. And, um, and then they sell it in the form of rock. And so they're replacing quarried rock with this uh, chemi chemically produced uh, limestone. Mm. And so, and again, that can scale all the way. 
if the ocean fertilization for some reason doesn't happen, the synthetic limestone can. It takes uh, a lot more infrastructure, maybe 50 times more capital investment to get it going compared to the iron fertilization, but it's doable. So it gives us a big a plan A, which is exactly how, excuse me, how uh, nature cools the planet. And then plan B is the limestones, how nature does it over long periods of time. Plan C is um, growing seaweed, which is very similar to plan A. So with the growing seaweed, it turns out that kelp and sargassum are the fastest growing plants on earth, more or less. I, I, there may be exceptions, but they're known as the most fastest growing plants. And um, there's lots of sun and water in the ocean. And so you can grow them with a kelp. You have to, it has to be anchored. So they use ropes or, or uh, tubes to anchor the, the kelp. It grows within three months and then half of it falls into the deep ocean, just sinks and um, half they harvest and sell for the chemical compounds because they're, are amazing chemicals. It, it's a it's, it's a nice food, which is good. It can be used as fuel. Um, but uh, someone showed me some fake leather that was made from sargassum. I don't know the chemistry, but it's very exciting because, like, wow, we don't need to grow cows for leathers. You can just use the similar chemicals from sargassum, and at the same time, uh, the money you paid for that goes for pulling millions of tons of CO2 from the air. Anyway, so those are, those are the three CO2 methods and they're all uh, financially viable. The first one with the ocean fertilization, because you're restoring the fisheries, the fisheries will chip in their share to make it work because they're making millions of dollars selling fish that people need. Yeah. And you know, much of the fishery is going to be indigenous fisheries Um uh, just because most of the coastline consists of indigenous peoples, but uh, but it's both commercial and indigenous. Mm -hmm. And then, so so that's the CO two part of the equation. So there are these three very very viable, uh, financeable, scalable, permanent ways of sequestering carbon. And and one of the beautiful things about this is it doesn't depend on government stepping up to the plate i mean there's been some movement actually lately in that regard yeah. addressing climate which is exciting um but it doesn't these solutions don't depend on that they can be they can be implemented in other ways by by you know private industry and so forth so what about the methane the methane yes so um the our listeners are probably excited that we can get all the CO2 out. We have three different methods, any one of which can do it. The three of them together can do it very easily. Um, if politics goes south and we have a government which doesn't want to fund anything again, that's okay. It'll slow things down a tiny bit, but not very much. Um, that's the, the very good news. And about three years ago, I was really excited doing a presentation at the United Nations about that. And then the news came out the next week about these methane bubbles coming from the Arctic. And methane is, uh, it's a big issue. And um, it's the, the big problem. And many of your listeners are, have heard about this. And if they're like me, they've ignored it. 
which is that um, as the there's a methane burst that's that's beginning from the Arctic, from the permafrost that's melting, because there's phenomenal amounts of grass that grows in the Arctic um, in the summer, just prodigious, and it gets uh, the the sea level rises and it, it stays submerged and doesn't rot, and um, when the the last time our planet lost its our, its polar ice cap, like we're doing now, we've lost eighty five percent of the ice in the Arctic o- Ocean. Uh, last time this happened, that the the, um, the permafrost under the ocean melted and released uh, huge amounts of, of methane, and the result was there was a temperature spike which killed about a third of the species on the planet, which we which we obviously want to avoid. And that's too, that's a bad way to say it, but we so want to avoid it. Now, we don't know how likely it is. And the scientists tell us rightfully, they said, listen, first worry about CO2. Don't worry about the methane. And that most of those scientists haven't read the book yet or hadn't read the book yet and realized that we can deal with the CO2. And now we can need to worry about the methane. It turns out that the way to deal with the methane again is the way nature does it, which is um, uh, methane in the atmosphere uh, decays; it, it oxidizes gradually. Methane is the same gas in natural gas. If you have a gas range, that's it's exactly the same thing, and um, it oxidizes naturally very slowly in the air with about an uh, eight-year half-life, um, and scientists figured out oh we can accelerate that we can double the that oxidation rate and when we do that um it'll it'll cut in half the level of uh, methane in the atmosphere and um what that means is if the methane burst gets big like it did 50 million years ago uh then we can oxidize it before we lose harvests and we might lose one harvest, but because we're oxidizing it uh, rapidly, we're shifting from an eight-year half-life to a four-year half-life, maybe even down to a two-year half-life. That says that if there's a methane burst, at worst, we'll lose two years of, of harvests. And you know, as, as, as we know from my, as I remember from my biblical study, seven years was about what we would, you know save up for i think that's what happened in egypt and and so you know, two years is is quite safe so we can actually save save humanity that way by increasing the the natural oxidation and the chemical for that uh the primary one is iron iron chloride it's actually the chlorine um that the sunlight will knock one of the chlorines off of an iron chloride molecule in the air and it happens naturally. Um, we would increase the amount of iron chloride uh, quite a bit over the ocean um, for several reasons. Um, and that would be enough to <clears throat> bring the, the methane level back down. It would ensure us against the methane burst. So if it hap- if it well, the methane burst is happening already, but it's not it's not serious yet. If it got bur- serious, this ensures that it won't extinct us. Um, the other very cool thing is because we've reduced the methane level by half or maybe even to, to a third, um, that cools the planet because it, we've discovered in the last five or 10 years that methane is producing about a third of the warming in the planet. So if we cut it by a half, 
that brings the warming back to what it was around the turn of the, of the century. And that's before the big wildfires and before the huge uh, floods and before we had all these 50 degrees Celsius or 120 degree days in more and more areas of the planet, which people simply can't survive. So um, it's, it, it's very, it's doable. And um, uh, the cost of it's about a billion dollars a year which is in the grand scheme of things, almost nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I have every confidence that we'll get the funding to do it. Um, initially, it'll be from investors probably. Um, and uh, we're hoping that the government will get interested, but you know, the government is political and you don't want to politicize something like this. You don't want you know, one party to think that it's the other party's ideas. They have to oppose it. So there's actually good reason for the government not to not to fund it, but we'll see. Uh, with that warning, I'm sure the government can find a way to make it non not nonpartisan. Um, and then the, the insurance companies, the the reinsurance companies, they're spending forty billion dollars a year more on storm damage than they did twenty years ago uh, at the turn of the century. And so if we can cut that 40 billion in half, which we almost certainly can do, then they'll save 20 billion and they if they could put in a billion of that into funding it. Yeah. And again, the government might want to do it, but politics is always a, a wild card. So I don't want to bet on it. Yeah. So I'm guessing, and I, I want to, um, well, let's talk about population because yeah. as you mentioned in your book, really population has been the key issue that if if human population were still at the levels that we were at i don't know a century ago or so the emissions would not be an issue they would they would be within a sustainable range and it's really been this tremendous population spike that has been at the root of of all of this so let's let's go there now. Yeah. Well, it, um, so, so the the way na nature keeps every species in in balance with its environment is with uh, the child survival rate. What fraction of seeds or children or yeah, acorns develop into mature? Uh, and so, you know, with acorns, it's you know thousands to one or one in a thousand or something. With fish fry, it's probably one in a million. With humans, it was about, it's always been about 30%. So about 30% of children who are born survive to adulthood. And that's true of chimps and bonobos and similar species. And the reason is so that when the environment is rich, then a lot survive and you have some healthy, you know, healthy children becoming young adults. And if the if the environment is poor, if there's a drought, let's say, or a fire, then fewer none survive, um, and the the population decreases, so it doesn't overwhelm the environment. And we discovered in the 1700s with uh, hygiene and and medicine how to increase the um, the survival rate because we don't, you know, as adults, we don't like our children dying. I don't need to explain that. And so we tripled it from 30% to 95% now. And, um, but we didn't reduce the birth rate correspondingly. 
because we didn't realize that was the method that nature uses, that child survival rate is the how nature regulates and keeps any species sustainable. But we can do that now. And so we, we know how to uh, have fewer children. And once we, uh, once we really talk about a, a goal of a sustainable population, which everyone wants, but it looks like you know, we actually coined that term in the book because I did some Googling and talked to some UN and I, IMF people. And I said, no, we've never talked about a sustainable population. You know, the implication is we always assumed it would be sustainable because since the beginning of language or beginning of time, as I like to say it, humanity's always been sustainable. Your, your tribe might be killed off, but humanity would be sustained. But that's no longer true. And so we have to develop the new language and the new stories. So, um, yeah. So, so, and so what's wonderful about restoring a sustainable population it sound, you know, politically, it sounds like it's impossible. But if you look at people as people, you realize that it's only 15% of the population that needs to take action. Just 15. And that's women from 15 years old to 40. And the rest of us um, aren't going to have children. I'm a guy, I'm not going to have any children. I think you're over 40 and probably not going to have any children now. And... Um, um, and and if we tell those those young women that we're heading back to a sustainable population, they're smart enough to know how many kids to have. We don't need to tell them. We can tell them that globally, as the birth rate has been declining, uh, and it's come down by a factor of three in, since 1960. Um, you know, if we come down a little bit more to the birth rate they have in Italy that'll take us right to a sustainable population by the end of the century. And um, all the young women I know are willing to play in that game and say, well, okay, how, how, you know, I'll decide the number of kids I'll have consistent with a global average of one or two children, but closer to one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the thing that I, things I was really interested in reading, well, first of all, population growth, I went on a chart online to see, the rates of growth. And I was really surprised that the the population growth rate now is lower than it was in this whole chart that went back, I don't know, early 1900, maybe the 1900, maybe 1900. I don't remember. Yes. You know, that's not the impression that we have. I think we think it's continuing to grow and grow and grow. So it's very interesting to see actually know that's slowing down, that's reversing, and we are coming back down. Yes. Sustainable. Yeah. So, so it, it doesn't require a big change. You know, most people think it does because, you know, one thing we know is that birth rates have to do with sex and sex is just a horrible thing to talk about. I mean, it's fun to talk about, but it gets you into a lot of trouble. And so we don't like talking about birth rates. And so we think that the whole thing is fraught. In fact, um, you know, uh, it, it's not that bad. Um, people ask me about the one-child policy in China, and it's useful to know if you if you go to Google and ask for the total TFR, total fertility rate in China, it'll give you a graph, and you can see it dropping from the 60s to the 80s 
Um, and they instituted the one-child policy in the mid-80s. And you could see the birth rate went back up again because people don't like being told what to do. Yeah. And then it went, continued back down along with the rest of the world. And then they got rid of it about six years ago, the one-child policy. And there was a little spike when some women who wanted two children had their second child. Um, and then it plummeted mm-hmm. because, again, yeah, the women said, it's expensive to raise kids. <laughs> so let, yeah. let me just save for my retirement and I don't need any kids. And so uh, it takes care of itself. In Africa, if you look at total fertility rates in different countries, and you'll see there's a, a overall curve of the wor- of the rest of the world. And then Africa has been on a whole different curve. And I asked some of my African friends their explanation for it. And generally, the explanation is: Listen, the West, you, know, you got you white folks in the West keep pressuring us to have small families, and you can't make us. And I thought, and I dawned on me that's the same thing that the Chinese women were saying: You can't make us. Um, and so, you know, just reminding them that they're smart and they can take care of themselves, and it's okay to have as many children as you want. And just keep in mind that we're all good. we're heading towards a sustainable population, and uh, the sooner you do it, the the fewer species will, that will go extinct. Yeah, I was really interested to hear to learn that from your book about the China one child policy, how it actually had the the opposite effect. And also yeah. the other thing, I think it wasn't it South Korea was it South Korea where they launched a campaign, girls are as good as boys. Yes. Uh, because a lot of times people would have more children hoping for a boy if they were a right. lot of daughters. So it's that's whole that whole, you know, patriarchal mindset that's also beginning to shift. So all of that is combining to to bring all of this down. Yeah. Well, you know, bringing into sort of your spiritual aspect that we there's a maturation of humanity where you know, it used to be we were a tribal species. And if my tribe tumbled, then another tribe would take over. But now we all rise and fall together. Mm-hmm. And when we're tribal, having men in charge is helpful because we're good at fighting wars. You know, we're better at fighting wars than women are. And you can have whatever assessment you have of the fact, but it's pretty objectively true. Well, now that the world isn't about fighting wars, then you don't need all those warriors anymore. Mm-hmm. And educating women and having putting women in charge makes all the sense in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many profound changes that are happening now. So where do we stand with all of this now, Peter? I mean, the, the vision is there, the, the knowledge is here. And where are we in terms of the implementation of all of this? Well, uh, the... the I'm I'm fortunate that we finished the book and got it out this year. Um, all of the the big four projects are beginning to move forward. The synthetic limestone is the farthest ahead. They're finishing a hundred million dollar fundraising or you know capital raising to build new factories. So that's exciting, and they got um, they got uh, rules in the U.S. government that requires the use of their synthetic limestone when it's available for commercial, uh, government roads and buildings. And most roads and most buildings are government. So that that's a, 
a big deal. It's, it's almost a fait accompli at this point. There's a lot of work to be done, <clears throat> but the pieces are in place. The ocean fertilization is beginning to move forward. Um, uh, agreements with a fair, quite a few countries are in place now, and they're waiting for investors. And uh, the investors are waiting for people to talk about it more so they don't look like they're rogue investors trying to manipulate the world. But that looks like that'll happen in the next five, you know, two to six months. I, I'm very, very confident. Um, but you know, if any investors listening to this you know, can contact me or look up Ocean Pasture Restoration, OPR World, and, and see how to get involved. Uh, the methane oxidation is beginning to move forward. We're, you know, we're having trouble raising our first 100000 or million dollars. But I, you know, the, the ugly thing in the corner here is my apparatus where I was testing the methane oxidation chemistry and showed that it actually reduces, oxidizes the methane as the theory uh, predicted. Um, so we're, we're on our way. The main thing is now the promotion. And so you're, you know, this interview is key. Um, you know, anyone who's listening, you know, if, if, if you uh, give talks, you know, uh, talk about restoring the climate. Uh, the critical thing is the goal. Once, once you're clear that we are going to restore the climate, you'll naturally find out the ways to do it. Yeah. And the same thing with restoring a, a sustainable population. Once you say, okay, we're going to restore a sustainable population, then you'll figure out how to empower the young women to make wise choices. Mm -hmm. And wise choices that are, are very healthy. That is, um, you know, it costs about a quarter million dollars to raise a child on average in the U.S. to high school, into high school. You know, and you know, if you're thinking about having another child, you might think, well, that quarter million dollars, if I'm not of a college you know, uh, family, that quarter million dollars after what, you know, in 50 years would be enough for you to retire. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're going to send your kid to college, it's another half million dollars. That would definitely would give you a very solid retirement. And so you can actually have a choice, have a second child or just save up for your retirement or even you know, maybe not have a first child. It's up, up to your, up to you. We do need children. So again, <laughs> yeah, I totally trust young women to open their eyes and make wise decisions without any advice from me. <laughs> so I want to um, just acknowledge that I think probably some people get pretty nervous at the idea that we might be tampering with, with things and like things might, there might be unintended consequences. Uh, what do you say to that? Because I think, you know, that's, you know, you can look at, well, the climate, the, the planet is where it is right now because of human activity. Yeah. Would this just be another opportunity for us to kind of screw things up? Almost certainly not. Um, that, that's an important concern. <clears throat> and um, if, the 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 way we're managing it so it's not going to be not going to be a problem is we're uh, instead of trying to improve things, which is unmeasurable, and it's and it's cultural. You know, what I think is an improvement, my uh, neighbor in Japan or in the Lakota Indians might not think is an improvement. 
So instead being a very objective and saying, we want to restore CO2 levels that humans have survived. So now we have a specific goal of restoring a livable planet. Um, we can make sure that any uh, uh, unexpected stuff that is, is that, that we don't like is corrected. Of course, any unexpected stuff that we do like, like the whales coming back was totally unexpected. And we want to keep that one. So there, <laughs> there will be a lot of unexpected uh, uh, side effects. Most of them, just because nature is very gracious, most of the side effects are going to be beneficial, but and the non-beneficial ones will correct immediately. Because mm -hmm. that's how you do things. Like if I'm driving to uh, to San Francisco, uh, you know, I adjust my path depending on the circumstances. Yeah. Well, thank you, Peter. I want to encourage people to really check out your book and follow your work. And what websites can people visit? Yes. So they can visit uh, peterfikowski.com. That's F-I-E-K-O-W-S-K-Y. Uh, and that's a dot com. And uh, I definitely encourage people to uh, visit the Foundation for Climate Restoration. It's spelled out, or you can do F and the number four cr.org. And the foundation has local groups where you can get trained to uh, to take action, to work with people, have some educational seminars, and write letters to the editor, meet with your member of Congress or local officials to make sure that the policies are instituted that will accelerate climate restoration. Great. And I will put those URLs and all on the podcast page on my website too. So people can yeah. find them there. Yeah. And whatever you do, have fun. You know, when it, you know, I, I, I personally don't want people getting involved who are going to be miserable and think that it's an obligation. Have fun because you're going to do it anyway. So have fun doing it. You'll do a better job. Yeah, great. Wise words. <laughs> well, thank you again, Peter. This has been really, really fun to talk to you. And I'm just so inspired by this vision and excited that this is doable. We can do this. Great. Great to know that. So yeah. thank you. Thank you very much. I look forward to our next conversation. We'll have traversed the long path by then. Yes. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Peter. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm.